It is in the depths of the silence that we find the sense, the meaning of all that we seek. And I suppose that's the most important lesson, that all this knowledge, all this outpouring, as you see, much, much more, a tremendous ocean of infinite knowledge. This is what we have been sharing, exists within us. Sri Aurobindo says, the eternal Veda is secret in the heart of every thinking creature. It's there. There is nothing which is outside. All knowledge is inside us. Knowledge of the essence, knowledge of the details, knowledge of the unfolding. And as we have been reading, it needs the intuitive turn in the heart, a quietude, a going behind the veil, a breaking of the lid above the head. And then all this knowledge pours pours in rivers, in torrents, in trickles, as floodgates, it just pours. So, in any case, whatever one speaks should be always through an inner inspiration, because what we are sharing is not an intellectual knowledge, it cannot be understood by intellect. Intellect often uh, turns it into its crude equivalence and distorts the truth of things, because this knowledge is a very subtle knowledge. What Shurabindu gives to us is not some, it's not been arrived through a process of intellectual uh, analytical deduction. Yoga is not a dissertation, as Shurabindu says in one of his letters. It is not an intellectual dissertation. It is not philosophy. It is a real scene. It is not that uh, the great ones have thought about it and felt maybe there is God in this world. They saw the divine and then they spoke about it. And uh, the greatest secret is that, and the greatest and the most obvious fact also, is that we all can see Him, we all can participate in relationship with Him, we all can play with Him. He loves to play with us. We make him so serious. There is this famous story of Shirvindo where says the divine comes and says, I want to play with you. And we want to worship him or we want to keep asking him. We can play with him. We can relate with him in so many ways. Given to man to do that. It is the destiny of earth. It is the future of earth because he is hidden in it. I think this is the most important one single truth that can save us and give hope in the darkest darkness of life. We all go through difficult moments. But if you remember that deep inside this darkness there is a truth, son of truth, waiting for its hour. Digging a tunnel through emergency as we read in Savitri. There is a great son of supramental truth, divine truth, within this creation, working in its heart, in its steps. That simple truth is the hope. We don't have to um, 
logicize. If there is a divine in this world, behind all the anomalous appearances, behind all the seemingly discordant appearances and note, then he will see to it that however difficult the passage, the end will be harmony and light and bliss and peace. As Shubhendu says in Savitri, how can the end be vain when God is guide? His failure is not failure whom God leads. How can the end be vain when God is guide? However fate lingers in the high beyond, it's true that it's not something instantaneous. This is the hope we have to keep. This is the great beauty of, uh, of course, uh, Indian thought, ancient Indian thought. It is also there in Western thought, but brought out forcefully in the Vedantic vision that there is hidden in this particle of dust, in this matter, as the mother puts it so beautifully, that each grain of sand can be an occasion for thy worship. Hidden in the heart of each atom, I kindle there in the fire, the fire that never burns out. It is an inexhaustible fire. It is the journey of that fire. Much more than it being our journey, it is the divine journey in us. He is much more bothered about taking us than we can ever imagine. He is much more concerned. I remember once... Um, Um, well, each one has a difficult moment. I had gone through a difficult phase of life, a very difficult moment. And at that time, a very old sadhaka fashram, I don't know how he came to know, must have come to know. So he sent a little note through someone. Of course, one knows it, and I was completely aware of it. But it came, it, you know, it adds, and it's such a beautiful thing to once again see it. He says, he asked the person to write to me, tell Alok, he is a bhakta of the divine and the divine will always stand by his side in all difficulties. That's such a beautiful... The mother says he is the friend who never fails. Such a beautiful thing. If we can just... He is a living and conscious being. He is not just some... some power which is... He can relate with us. Just come down at our level and be with us. But we have to put that trust. His hand is ever held. We read in Savitri, alive in a dead rotating universe, we whirl not here upon a casual globe. A divine intervention thrones above. It is near us in unnumbered bodies and births. It holds in, in its safe grasp in its grasp, forever safe, the one inevitable supreme result when first man's heart dared death, the crown of conscious immortality. It always holds. A hand is felt upon our lives. So there is this presence of the divine in this creation. <clears throat> and this is not just an impersonal, universal, static presence. This is another aspect of Shurabindu's thought. He's there and we can go and meet him 
but he has no business to do with creation. This is one kind of thought that, you know, creation is an accident. Shubhendra says so powerfully, creation is not an accident. It is not a meaningless, unfortunate accident. It is a very conscious will that is active in creation. It is not just that somehow it came to be and divine was helpless or some maya, mysterious maya came. And then along with Miss Maya came Mr. Desire and together they spoiled the whole play. <laughs> because <clears throat> Miss Maya and Mr. Desire both are little children of that and he knows how to handle the play. This is his play. And this play has a purpose. This is the second thing that Shubhendra reveals to us. And this purpose is not just to go back to him. That's uh, go back empty-handed, denuded, fearful, frightful. You know, our situation is like supposing there is a football match and suddenly we wake up in the middle of the match. We say, my God, what's happening around? People are jostling, pushing me and there is a ball. I don't know what's happening. Slowly we are told these are the rules of the game and this is what is happening. We have to learn the rules of the game and play consciously. But we are in too much hurry to abandon the game. Because when we look around, it's a nightmare. Imagine, you know, if we suddenly if the ball football becomes conscious, what would it feel, experience? So we have to understand that this game has been set with a purpose. And in this game there are no losers. The team that loses grows in strength. There's this, some of us may have read that one night there was an obstacle and someone asked God to help him remove the obstacle. God says, you try, you push. He pushes whole night. <coughs> Nothing happens. Doesn't move a centimeter, millimeter. He says, what kind? You have said push, so I take it that, you know, you mean, mean it. What is it that you are joking? He says, push harder. So next day he pushes harder. 10 days he hears the command push a little more a little more try nothing happens and one day God comes and just you know picks up the stone and throws it aside he says you could have done this 10 days back <laughs> why did you do all this 10 days I had to push so God says look at your muscles didn't you notice how much they have developed if I would have told you do this so that your muscles will develop, you would never do it. <laughs> so, it's a true. If you look at life as a vast gymnasium of his works of might, every challenge that we face in life, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, it's God is giving us little exercise. It's a challenge. When we take it like that, and we know he is there, he is just there, right there, and if he has chosen to kind of uh, not enter and directly push, pick up the stone and throw it away for us, he's a, there's a reason in it. And that reason, Shubhendu reveals to us that when, you know, Narada reveals the face of fate, that why, you know, one has to go through all this problem, difficulties, why can't he just solve it all for us? So... Beautifully, first he says, O King, the events that meet thee on the road, 
Though they smite thy body and soul with grief and joy, are not thy feet. They touch thee a while and pass. The road, the goal thou choosest are thy feet. So how does it operate? He says that the spirit rises mightier with each defeat. Its godlike wings grow wide with every fall. So these challenges are given in life to everyone. This is the process. In ignorance, we have to go through this struggle, suffering, everything. And it's a whole evolutionary struggle. What we see right from the little dust to man. There is a series and steps of struggle. And this struggle is aided from the other side. Arriving from the other shore of boundlessness. An eye of deity peered through the vast. So it enters into the play, pulls it one step up. Every time we see in the story of avatars, earth goes and the divine comes and lifts the earth out of the waters. So this is the uh, whole story that is going on on earth. And this drama, Sri tells us, has reached a very crucial and critical juncture. It has reached a decisive turning point. In the sense, uh, as he says, uh, mankind, what mankind is facing today is an evolutionary crisis in which is concealed the choice of his destiny. What a beautiful case. We are going through an evolutionary crisis, not petrol crisis, not energy crisis, not political crisis. All these outer crises are only reflections of a deep inner crisis. And that crisis is essentially in its nature an evolutionary crisis. We can remain what we are and this crisis will hit us harder all over the world. Or we can choose to be other than what we are and be what we should truly be and the mask is ripped off. And then we see behind the dark, cruel mask of death, the eyes of the same Divine Beloved, whose smile saves. So this is the whole journey. And in this journey, what is that great mantra? <clears throat> so many mantras are there. In Sanskrit, in English, all languages, there is one mantra. Grace. The mother says when she is doing the yoga of the cells of the body, she says, uh, you know cells don't believe in grace. They are so much tuned to evolution through struggle. So far it has been in ignorance, so, so much of struggle. That's what they know. They don't know of any other law. They don't understand that you can have trust and by grace things can work out. They just don't believe it. So she says, I have to convince them a thousand times that you trust in grace. Trust in grace. So these cells, he's talking of cells, not of inner consciousness, not of just our, you know, some part of nature. The very body, it has to open up to a greater light, a light which is essentially concealed within it, but for it to be released, it needs an intervention from above. And that is the task of Shurabindo. He has brought down that light, Shurabindo and the mother, 
worked it out. Now each one in each one this has to be worked out in one's own way. So as we open in our mind, heart, body and life to this greater consciousness which is the next phase of evolution, more and more the very form will adapt and evolve to a new becoming. So we have this great puzzle, you know, on one side we see evolution of forms and sciences, there is no meaning in it and it's just happening by accident. What an accident! If this is accident, this is wonderful. Out of dust man can emerge by accident. Something marvelous must be happening. And uh, it uses waste and chance to evolve this. I mean, no human calculation can ever imagine how it will use everything. We use word waste, but in the divine economy there is nothing like waste. Waste is used for something else. What we call as waste. In the totality of creation. Everything is being used towards this greater upliftment. This great journey. So we see that when we look at the journey through large scale. So this is the scientific view of evolution. Evolution of forms. And of course we have the Vedantic view of evolution. The evolution of the soul. So it says it doesn't matter. Whatever form, you know, human form wants to take birth. And in this view, the soul is evolving through the cycle of um, how many? 84 lakh species or something like that. A couple of species here and there must have, you know, or they have gone and some new have come into existence. But apparently there are 84 lakh, 84 lakh species through which the soul is evolving. Evolving for what? At the end of the day, when the soul evolves to a point through all this experience, then it just discards this creation, discards the last birth, and that's it. It vanishes into the unknown. Now, that is another view of evolution, the inner view, where through the form, it, it is evolving. The basic question is, why should it enter into the form and to evolve and go back from where it came? I mean, it's a logical absurdity that if the soul has to go back and realize what it always is, was or will be, then it, it's an absurdity to enter into the play and then go through the struggle and the suffering and uh, after quite an 84 lakh births of suffering, suddenly one time it is told, look, you know, you get out of this. So, Shurabindu says, yes, there is an inner evolution and there is an outer evolution, but both are there is a togetherness in the two. And even in the ancient view it is there. For instance, when it is said that of all the births, in human birth you can realize the divine. So there is a meaning of the form. Otherwise, there is no sense in it. Why not then in animal form? In every form there is the divine presence. Why in human form? So there is a sense of the form. The reason is very simple. In human form, the consciousness has become relatively subtle enough for this spiritual element to emerge. That's the basic meaning. In animal life, it is called as asana mrityu. It is living completely submerged in darkness. Even if an animal consciousness wants, it is so obscure that it cannot really come out. You know, if one really experiences not uh, these forests, I don't know how it is in Amazon, but I experienced in the savannas in Kenya, that Masai Mara jungle. 
So we were told not to step out of the bus, but my usual curious self, suddenly when, you know, the bus had stopped and I saw the driver is here and there and um, they had arranged it basically for me to experience, so I opened the door and stepped out. And immediately I could sense that what animal creation is, everything is submerged in that. And um, suddenly he realized and said, you know, quite a good shouting and I was back into the bus. Because <laughs> it's dangerous. You can sense that entire animal kingdom. There is no, it's very nice, beautiful, but it's completely unconscious. Man is a creature who stands erect. He's reached that point where he can become conscious. Why? Because consciousness has become subtle enough. That's why we have become aware of a subjective side within us. That's why we have seeking. That's why we are dissatisfied. All these are God's grace. Thank God we are not satisfied with what we have. Otherwise, we would not seek. So this satisfaction um, is also a grace. How the divine uses everything. Uh, we are like the you know crow chased by Lakshmana's tear. You know the story, Jayanth goes and pecks at Rama's feet or Sita's feet. Are they God? Really? He's, you know, child of, he's younger brother of Indra. So he pecks at the feet. Rama smiles. He's, after all, crow. But Lakshmana can't take it. He puts the arrow and shoots at him. Then the crow flies. He is no ordinary crow. He flies and goes to his brother Indra. But then he looks back and sees the arrow following him. He says, my God, what kind of an arrow is this? This doesn't look like a mortal's arrow. Indra says, I cannot save you from this arrow, please. If I try to save you, I will also be hit. So he flies to Shiva and Shiva says, this arrow is beyond me. Go further. He goes to Brahma, Vishnu and then he is told, Are you a fool, nutcase? Don't you see that that arrow is so strong that none of us can save you? Why don't you go back and surrender back to the feet? <laughs> he goes back and then surrenders at the feet. And then Lakshmana takes back the arrow. It's a very small, significant story. Jayanth is the younger brother of Indra. Indra is, we know, is a human mind and this is the ordinary human mind. Like a crow, it is pecking and trying to find out things. In the process, suddenly it gets hit and hit from here, hit from there. And it cannot get the satisfaction, it cannot get the perfect security, that safety, that ease it is seeking, till it comes back and finally makes the complete surrender. This is the whole story, this mind... That's what the other day we were sharing that this intellectual faculty of which man is so rightly and yet so vainly proud, this has to learn to consciously surrender itself instead of just an unconscious surrender as in the case of animals. Now, when that surrender takes place, so the first step is we have already known that this inmost soul in us that is freed from the clutch. But the matter doesn't end here. 
Because Shurabindu says the whole cycle was not just for this. Even this form, this nature, it must be uplifted to a higher degree of expression of the divine. Right now our nature does not express the divine. It is one of the paradoxes that the divine is Satchidananda, he is truth, existence, consciousness, bliss, but our nature is almost its opposite. Or at least, even at its best, a very faint and pale reflection of something far greater and truer. This nature also must be uplifted to that point where the dress is equal to the wearer of the robe. It must share the same truth, the same consciousness, the same bliss. So, essentially it's not just that the divine is as a passive presence inside and the soul must liberate itself and the divine says, come back away from the frightening nightmare and it goes and merges itself. Even this creation is an act of the divine. It is his shakti that has become all these seeming play. Just as it is he who has become this miniature soul, it is his shakti that has become this nature and therefore this nature can be lifted to great heights and tremendous intensities and potencies of the spirit. But as of now, it is not yet ready for that. So it has to go through a process of conscious surrender, aspiration. Morning, I think I was speaking about it. The fire baking the clay. This matter has to become ready to receive. It is not able to receive. Or if the moment it, it's, the divine touches it, it burns, it cannot bear it. This, I know this story of um, someone who when he came to ashram and he had a very interesting experience. He actually, the moment he, he wrote to, he, he, this man was going through a lot of distress in his life and one day in that distress he rush, rushes to the Kali temple and there he hears a voice uh, right to the mother of at Pondicherry. Now he didn't know that there is something like at Pondicherry the mother. So nevertheless he found out and he wrote a letter. As soon as he wrote a letter, he says for the next 15 days he was constantly experiencing a rose in front of him. And uh, this many people used to experience, they would write to mother and get an instant response. Even now it is a reality if we can make it as an act of faith. So he wrote and it, it, uh, the letter went back and forth and he got the reply from um, Nalida that mother says you can come. So he went and stayed in Golkun. Now when he has written he is experiencing rose. But when he stayed in Golkund, he started experiencing frightening nightmares. Night after night, he would experience Rakshasas and Asuras coming and sucking his blood from the chest and all these things. And every morning he would go and say, Mother, I experienced this and Mother would remain quiet. This carried on, carried on. After some time he says, Mother, I am very afraid. Mother then suddenly said, if you are afraid, you cannot do yoga. He says that hit me like so hard. If you are afraid, you cannot do yoga. He says, no, no, no. He was now, he says, I was doubly afraid. I am afraid of the nightmare. I am afraid that mother will scold me if I, you know, speak. But it was an action of Mahakali. He, he, he says that that was really a grace. That 90% of the fear after that vanished. And then he developed 
all that fear, that energy accumulated and there was a big boil coming on his feet. Very painful. So he goes to mother and the mother, it was very painful. He couldn't sleep 48 hours, you know, he was writhing in pain. He says the mother looked at it and when she looked at it, my whole body started burning with fire. And then mother told him after looking at it, go back. So he was totally unprepared for this, you know. What a command. <laughs> but then, you know, he was told go back. So he took it. He didn't know how to go back. He didn't have money. He didn't know, you know, how with all this pain I will go back. But then when divine does this, there is a grace which is operative and... Uh, uh, somebody suddenly came up and he said, I'll help you out. And you know, it was all divine arrangement. But outwardly it was taking as if a set of circumstances. He says, I didn't, didn't realize what a tremendous grace it is. I left Pondicherry with 100% whole body as if it was in a fire. By the time I reached Chennai, 50% was gone. When I reached Calcutta, why Calcutta he had to go to his place, said 90% gone. When I reached my village, all gone. He says, then I realized what a tremendous preparation is required just to be near the divine. And then he came. Of course, he is now decades, he is in the ashram. And the whole story is a story of grace. He is the man who sent me that message, incidentally. I won't name him. still alive. And he has learned his lesson. So with high blood pressure, he would just roam around. 220, 120, 130 and if people tell him to take medicine, he'll say, Acha de do. so he'll eat for two days and then stop it. <laughs> so these are real things one has seen in life. The body cannot bear it. We just want instant transformation. It's not like divine's working is not like instant coffee or, you know, fast food restaurant. I go to ashram and I feel very good and third day I should have some great experience. People often ask, I went to ashram, I didn't experience something or they will say, I experienced very nice. It's not about experience. Anybody can give experiences and people can have any number of experiences doing nothing. Experiences are the easiest things to have. People often come, oh, I experienced something nice inside. That's not what is required. It's, it's an inner experience. We go inside and feel good or we see a vision or we experience joy. It's all right. It enriches the consciousness, but it doesn't transform it. They don't transform the nature. It just opens a door and shows us that there is something beyond the veil. And it's good. It kind of reaffirms. But sometimes we want experiences for their own sake. So we are looking for experiences. Last time I had this experience. This time let me see what experience I have. And then they compare notes. What did you experience when you go to the Samadhi? I felt very peaceful. I don't know, thoughts kept coming to my mind. I didn't feel peaceful. Maybe that was what required. When somebody asked mother, mother, why should... I'm saying all this to see the complexity of the task. It's not something like mathematical 2 plus 2 equal to 4. The divine all comprehending intelligence doesn't act in the human way. Shobhini has written this. Do not avoid judging the divine by your mind. Your mind will fail. How it uses even errors and difficulties for a greater uh, becoming. So, um, 
Well, they are very, very many interesting stories. So somebody asked, Mother, why do ugly thoughts come to me in front of you? So that means people had ugly thoughts in front of her. He said, why should they come? He said, Mother, but they are not supposed to come in front of you. And Mother smiles and says, uh, perhaps because they can be thrown out. And she would tell that, look, when you come to me, don't come wearing the garb of a nice-looking angel. She said, what will I do with all that? You are coming, showing that I am very virtuous. I know my child, virtuous and wicked and gods and titans. I play with them as little babes. Come to me just as you are. And open yourself. And then I will act, work in you. Opening yourself is very important. Otherwise, we will remain just as we are. Come to me just as you are. And open, just like Frank, like a little child who is not ashamed. The mother knows everything. She has brought up the child as a baby. So she knows. And then I will use the super rain soap and scrub you. Then don't say, mother, it's paining because you know so much of... So much of dirt is there when the divine gives a nice scrub, like little babies cry. Mom, you are very bad, the worst mom in the world. Mom says, okay, okay, don't worry. Moms keep on doing it. The baby keeps on cursing. Mom keeps on doing it. Then after some time, when the baby is all fresh and cried, cursed everything, she has put a nice dress. Says, Come, see what I have made for you? Chocolate pudding. Ah, mom, you are the best mom in the world. <laughs> so we should be prepared for the scrum. Without Shruti, there is no Mukti. Without Mukti, there is no Bhukti. Without Bhukti, there is no Siddhi. It's the path of yoga. If one is afraid of purification, better to stay away. <laughs> Mother has said, my child, do not do one mistake. She has, of course, put it in... And this is slightly different way. But she says, don't make one mistake. What is that mistake? Don't come to divine. Now it's her words. Don't come to the divine saying, I want to be yours. Whereas deep inside you are all the time wanting to belong to the world. She says, don't do that. Say that I want this in the world. Fine, that's all right. Nothing wrong with that. But if you come to the divine... Saying that I want to be yours and divine takes your consecration seriously. The whole world cannot keep you apart. Jesus says, Yoga is a fire. Do not touch it if you don't want to grow more and more sincere. It is going to burn the ego self. Whoever found the divine without demolishing the ego. Let's not harbor illusions. There is a famous, I mean, well-known mystic Kabir. He says, you know, how to find divine, how to just sit into his chamber. Now, you know, we have, it's so easy and we take our time and we, you know, everything is taken easily. Sometimes I feel, imagine, you know, we say that seven o'clock we have a program and, you know, like I would like to offer to mother, mother, seven o'clock, be present in our midst. If mother is physically present, what would be our situation? So, when we tell to the divine and he takes that consecration seriously, then 
it burns down all the barriers. So Kabir says, just to sit in the divine presence, what is the requirement? Forget about yoga. So he says, ye to ghar hai prem ka khala ka ghar nahi. Shish kataye bhuhi dhare tab baithe ghar mahi. This is the house of love, not your aunt's house. So what is the requirement? Cut off your head and leave it at the door. Then you have the right to just sit in the sanctum sanctorum. Just to sit in that house of love, the ego has to be put aside. Okay, go back and put it, that's different. <laughs> but just to sit inside that sanctum sanctorum, ego has to be set aside and then we have the right to sit adhikar. Now, of course, things are very easy. Everything is available. Mothers collected works, children those works. That's what I was saying and it's a very... Uh, very sad thing. It's 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 kind of tragic. I I feel it's tragic. May may not be. At least I feel it's tragic that Shirobindo has 35 volumes of what you know is one of his poems. He writes, "Seer deep-hearted, divine king of the secrecies, occult fount of love, white star scripts of the gods crossing the human night, thought after thought." Broke burning, crossing the human night, was white stars, scripts of the gods, born from the presses of light, page by page, to the dim children of earth were given. Vast in thy soul was a tide, washing the coasts of heaven. All that knowledge, you know, it's literally the most beautiful expression of Charnamrit. In Indian tradition, we have Charnamrit that you know you wash the feet of gods and you drink it. It is something which strengthens us. So Shobindo puts it in a magical phrase: seer, deep-hearted, divine king of secrecies, occult fount of love. Vast in thy soul was a tide washing the coasts of heaven. So it was bringing the Charnamrit. And then he says. Thoughts broke burning and bare, crossing the human night. White star scripts of the gods, born from the presses of light. Page by page to the dim children of earth were given. Response from earth, we the children of night, don't care to read. Page by page, Book after book is kept in the libraries. <laughs> we love the night and all that it gives us. Who cares for day? Who cares for the light? That is the sad tragedy. And then Mother's works, 17 plus 13 volumes of agenda plus so many other things. I sometimes feel life is so short just to read them. Forget about, you know, even living one step just to know such a vast ocean of knowledge they have poured for whom? This knowledge itself is liberating. Just reading Shurabindu liberates us from fear. One of the first things that happens, it's, it has power in it. One reads and one feels free of anything because one sees, my God, what a light, what a wonder, what a joy. 
for the first time one makes sense of why one is born what casual deed and passing circumstance determined life and fate so then one discovers all these questions we ask why me why this had to happen everything they have answered there is not a single question whose answer is not there and the biggest answer is puzzle of creation which is being carried upward towards a great divine fulfillment this is the work of shubhendra and the mother which for the divine compassion they have given to earth we cannot imagine uh, how shubhendra would be writing there was no computer there was nobody to type out for him arya he would suddenly he would sit 64 pages he would type it will all come in one block and on diverse topics and then he would write so many letters so many things whole night in what in that kerosene oil he would be sitting and writing from his letter writing would start somewhere around uh, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night go on till morning 6 or 7 his breakfast would be uh, initially it would be 9 then it got pushed till 1 till then 3 pm shobindo is having his first meal can you imagine what that life has been and why he had to do all this he could he was living in that consciousness he could simply say shivoham shivoham i am i am that that's the end of things for us all kinds of questions and all kinds of doubts and you would patiently reply and reply and reply and reply if we just read that just reading shobindo's life can be liberating when we look at it the kind of compassion he has displayed the kind of compassion mother has displayed somebody asked her mother why did you come like us this is my my child if i didn't come like you how could i tell you that you can become like me so divine assumption of the human clock we were speaking of the divine descent in matter <coughs> assumes our imperfections he assumes all that we are so that we can be uplifted to that light and what a waste that after all this we still have to you know wait and think can cogitate and analyze and rather than plunging into the fire which they have released for our ten men so sarvithi is there i also feel like going on because it's about yeah but uh, but let me have the savitri because <laughs> there is no end to it i thought that today we'll have more and more questions rather than actually speaking but essentially it is that the assurance they have brought to earth is of a great and luminous future that this creation is not an unfortunate accident the drama of the world has not yet unfolded its last scene the last great act man is a transitional being who will be surpassed not by a nidzian kind of being who is terrenous and asuric but by a god like being who is strong and sweet and who embodies the light and strength and love and vastness of the divine embrace so just a couple of passages from here and there
one from the secret knowledge. Which directly is about today's subject. The master of existence lurks in us. This is page 66-67. What a great truth. This truth itself is so liberating. If you just, just pause and reflect, the master of existence lurks in us and plays at hide and seek with his own force and in all of us. It's not that he is a privileged position of some person sitting in Pondicherry ashram. He is everybody's. There is nobody who is bereft of that. This is the first birthright, that story of Isu and Jacob, where they sell their birthright <coughs> for a mess of pottage. So it is our birthright. He is there as part of it. It's the minimum. It's a starting point. If you really look at it, what privileged creature is that this is the minimum starting point that is given to all of us. And what is that? Nobody's anath. After reading it, we should not never think anybody is anath. He carries all of us. How? He will take care in, in his own ways. It's not some people do that, try to do what God did not do. It's not that. Everything is him. The master of existence lurks in us and plays at hide and seek with his own force. The, the most favorite game in childhood plays at hide and seek. In nature's instrument, loiter secret God in our thought, in our feelings, in our will, in our impulsion, in our very breath and heartbeat. He mingles and is doing something. <coughs> The immanent lives in man as in his house. He has made the universe his pastimes field. A vast gymnasium of his works of might. What is this world? Gymnasium. We have, we have, we have to play in it. All knowing, he accepts our darkened state. Divine wears shapes of animal or man. If you start looking at life from that consciousness, he has become this animal, he has become this plant, he has become this dust. He is there in all things. It's a, one of the forms of meditation given in uh, the Upanishad. Eternal, he ascends to fate and time, immortal dallies with mortality. The all-conscious ventured into ignorance. The all-blissful bore to be insensible. Incarnate in a world of strife and pain, he puts on joy and sorrow like a robe and drinks experience like a strengthening wine. He whose transcendence rules the pregnant vasts, prescient now dwells in our subliminal depths, a luminous individual power alone. So there is the double sense of the divine descent. He assumes forms and names. In his depths he is prescient. He knows about all things. But on the surface he, has, he assumes joy and sorrow and goes through all that experience and drinks it like a strengthening wine. 
water, wine, the divine wine. There are two things famous in Pondicherry. <laughs> wine and divine. <laughs> and each one makes a choice. So he drinks experience like a strengthening wine. And even when he assumes the human cloak as an avatar, he does that in grim earnest. It's the story in Ramayana where Rama is searching for Sita, going around saying Sita, Sita. He's asking each flower. It's really so much pathos in that particular moment filled by the great poet that each flower, each plant he sees, each animal, he says, have you seen my Sita? Seeing changes. Above, Shiva is constantly going down and saying, he is Sachidanand Brahm. What a Leela, what a Leela. So Sati nudges him and says, are you okay? <laughs> he says, why? He says, don't you see like an ordinary mortal, he is crying for his wife. You call him God? Sachidanand Brahm, what's come over you? Are you sure you haven't taken an extra dose of usual? <laughs> Shiva says, Sati, I do go into trance, but this that you have taken, this delusion, this is far worse. So Sati is not convinced. He says, go down and test if you want. Sati goes to test. So she assumes the form of Sita. He said, I'm going to reveal to him. So he assumes, she assumes the form of Sita and hides in the bushes. So Rama comes that way. Have you seen Sita? Have you seen Sita? He suddenly sees Sati. Disguised as Sita. So Rama addresses her. Mata, what are you doing here? <laughs> Shiva would be so unhappy. Why have you disappeared? from his throne and the story goes that she goes back not able to show her face and Shiva merges into a trance Sati is Avidya Mai Maya it is, is, that's why she has to plunge into fire and Parvati is the Vidya Mai Maya it's a whole very symbolic story but essentially when the divine assumes a human shape and takes into a grim earnest the battle of human life and Himself becomes the protagonist of the play. Krishna doesn't say, I'll be behind. He says, I'll be on the chariot. I'll not fight. I'll not raise a single astra. And right in the middle. So also Rama says, I'll be right in the forefront. So he takes upon himself the burden of earth. Because that is the whole purpose. Mother and Shivindo did not come to say, you do this, you do that. I will take upon myself the entire pain and struggle of creation. The absolute, the perfect, the alone has called out of the silence his mute force. This creation is an act of that Shakti which is in the depths of the divine. There is a story in the Vedas, the bride of Brahman, how she goes far away from him and has to be brought back. Where she lay in the featureless and formless hush, guarding from time by her immobile sleep, the ineffable puza of his solitude. When a child asks mother, mother, um, 
you are God, you are divine Shakti. How did you know what has to be done when God asked you to create? It's a very childish way of asking. Mother said, my child, when the divine will for creation, he brought out of himself his knowledge and power. And I am that. So I knew what is to be done. So it is not just power, it is knowledge and power together. The absolute, the perfect, the alone has entered with his silence into space. He's not only transcendent, but also a universal cosmic being. He has fashioned these countless persons of oneself. Another place, Shivananda says in Savitri, all here that seems to be its lonely self are figures of the soul transcendent one. He has fashioned these countless persons of oneself. He has built a million figures of his power. Everything is revelation of something of him. Actually, we can look at the entire creation like that. Dust is his humility. Stars drifting in space is his greatness. Universe is his vastness. He's called as Virat. The atom is his capacity to limit himself. Death is his mask. Life is his journey. Everything can be seen that way. He lives in all who lived in his vast alone. Space is himself and time is only he. The absolute, the perfect, the immune. Now it is not only transcendent and universal, even as an individual. Our mask, one who is in us as our secret self, our mask of imperfection is assumed. He has made this tenement of flesh his own, his image in the human measure cast. So he limits himself to our level. We can relate with him as a disciple, as a child, as a uh, slave, as a friend, as a playmate, as a beloved, as a him as mother or father and he reduces to that image because that is his, his greatness. That to his divine measure we might rise then in a figure of divinity the maker shall recast us and impose a plan of Godhead on the mortal's mold. Someone asked that why does the divine grant us our desires if that's what ultimately he has to get us rid of it. He says, sometimes he does that so that after a while you start desiring the one who is granting you all this. So even that is his play. In the initial phases he gives. After a while he says, you are getting too addicted to this. Let me just take. So he is both the giver and he is the one who takes. And he knows the time and he knows the process. Lifting our finite minds to his infinite, touching the moment with eternity and then the great hope, the purpose for which creation has been built, made. Actually none of these words are accurate because it's still in the process of becoming. This transfiguration is earth's due to heaven. A mutual debt binds man to the supreme. The other day we read about God's paying here, God's debt to earth and man. Is a mutual debt. Not only father owes something to us, we owe something to the father. It's a both ways process. 
we have in the Vedas the threefold Rin, Bhumi Rin, Dev Rin, Pitra Rin. So something he, there is a debt he owes to us. By the very fact creation has come into being, it is his duty to see that it goes through and it changes into his image. On our side, we have to also collaborate in the process. So it is a Sahi Yoga. Divine does Yoga for Earth. We have to do Sahi Yoga. We have to collaborate. We cannot do Yoga. Divine does that. So what is it that we have to aspire for? Seek His nature. We must put on as, as He put ours. And see these liberating lines. What's your given name? What's your surname? What is your nationality? All these questions I have to fill up every time I travel. I can't write. We are sons of God and must be even as He. That is the truth. This whole world is reeling in false. Can't help it. Everything is false, artificial, untrue. It, it pushes us from all sides. This is not truth. Who is our dad and mom? We are sons of God and must be even as He. His human portion we must grow divine. Our life is a paradox with God for key. Okay, so we can have questions. So that was the choice that I took was not speaking. This is the result. So <laughs> now we can have questions. How to dissolve our ego and ambition? By turning it Godward. Ambition should change into will to serve the divine. And ego must more and more become the servant and slave of God. Through God love, through God service, ego gets dissolved. Through God service and God love, ambition changes into service of the divine. Yes. Can silence talk? Yes, silence, there is a poem of Sri Silence is all, say the sages. And then he says, silence is the beaker in which the word pours itself as wine and the sage is, sages, the soul is the listener, drinker and the sages come for the banquet. So, Sri silence talked and poured thousands of pages. Silence, actually all speech is born of silence. And the more we plunge into the depths of the silence, the more we open to infinity. That word which can express itself throughout and through the ages and yet it will not exhaust itself. That is the speech of the silence. It is the Paravak expressing itself through Vaikri and Madhyama. Shri Ramakrishna also say the same thing. 
Rostnul vom zakhen fischia tu cine sunt șeapa. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes, it is there in the Upanishad. In fact, the whole sloka goes something like, um, I don't remember the exact Sanskrit, but the first part of the sloka is that, ah, I have seen an Adhut Darshana. What is the Darshana? He says, um, Shishya Vridha Guru Yuva Monam Karoti Vyakhyanam Shishya Chidyanti Shanshaya. So he says, I have seen a strange miracle before my eyes that the Guru is young and the disciple is old. It is, I mean, there's no age. When we look at Shirobindo at 38, he had realized everything. <laughs> and when he came, what would be his consciousness at 38? And the mother in 21, she had realized unity with the divine and everything that one can imagine. And at 33, she, she had come to ashram and people didn't know. You know, it, it took them time for to absorb that shock. And how would Sri Aurobindo uh, pour that knowledge? He is silent and yet all the doubts vanish. And of course, there is the other way, which is known in the Gita. Vidyanti, Hridhivranti, Chidyanti, Sarvasanshya. That's why it is actually narrated as Sati and Shiva. So Sati in whole of Shiva legend is regarded as the Avidyamai Maya. Actually the entire uh, uh, entire journey of Sati if we say and even see even the Daksha story where she uh, doesn't listen to Shiva and goes away. Yeah, so Sati is that. But Parvati, that's why that old Avidyamai Maya is also his consort. And yet it has to be dissolved and reborn as Parvati, Gauri, Uma, Hemvati to be by his side. So this is a symbol of the story. But there is another interesting part of the story that the divine mystery of birth, the mystery of divine birth, even the gods don't understand. It is there even at another place in the Ramayana about Kagbhushundi and uh, another interesting story is about Garuda, which the other day I was recounting, so it may be duplicating it. But even the gods don't understand the mystery of divine birth. When divine is born and limits himself, because they are fixed tribal beings, they don't know evolution. They have no idea of what this touch of matter is. They also crave for it. You know, that's why when the divine comes, some of the gods plunge headlong because they want to play with this Leela. This Leela is beyond even the gods. And that's why in Kathopanishad there is a very interesting. Uh, response of Yama when um, Najiketa asks him, Tell me about 
whether some say the soul exists, some say it does not. What are your views? Now he is asking directly the man. <laughs> Am I supposed to take? So, you know, he's asking the horse's mouth. So Yama says, this is debated as of old even by the gods. So gods also don't know whether soul exists or not. The mother solves this riddle. She says they don't have a psychic being. They don't understand. So the mystery of evolution which is directly related to the divine descent in matter, even the gods do not understand because they also are suddenly that veil that the divine puts and he comes putting many avails and acts in grim earnest accepting the conditions of the play um, the, the gods a god's labor where Shubhinda says that that how they sneer at me both devils and men and the gods deny they don't uh, easily allow because they don't know and yet he has to work it out through that process so it's a difficult thing I, one can understand if the gods don't understand because they don't do this and they this is a mystery unless this evolutionary principle is there one doesn't understand they are fixed to the type so they don't understand evolution that's why if you see the way gods act up with human beings is very different whereas when the divine acts that's why it is said that it is one thing to have a deity as one's guru it's another thing to have a human master, means somebody who has gone beyond the human as a master. But when you have the avatar as your master, then the, there are no limits to your realization. This is, this is Shobindu's letter. If you have the avatar himself as your master, there are no limits because he takes the entire burden and works through it. So this is the, it's a mystery. Even if it was Parvati, one can understand that she, she doesn't I listened to talks of Jagadguru Kripalu Maharaj. He says that God did not make everybody with the same power. He made Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh with a different power. And he made the human beings with much, much less. And you have to attain, and in order to attain this, you have to make the efforts. While these people, the Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh, that is a different category and mm -hmm. they are totally different and they don't have to break. Yeah, so they don't evolve either. But human beings, through evolution, can surpass Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesh. That is the beauty of human beings. That they, are, they start from here, the gods are here, but it is given to man to transcend the gods. The gods, the, the god kingdom, they, they are not seen as the Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh. That's right. Yeah. But even Brahma, Vishnu and Mahesh, that kingdom can be transcended by the human soul. And it's an ancient knowledge. I mean, the entire Vedantic knowledge or Upanishadic knowledge is that, that one can transcend the plane of the gods. But yes, as ordinary mortals, because we don't exploit that innate capacity in us, that's why we end up worshipping the gods. But in fact, the Upanishad says, many men are the cattle of the gods, but they need not be so. And all the great ones who have identified with the Supreme, they have gone beyond the gods, because the Supreme is surely beyond the gods. And uh, one cannot identify with the Supreme unless one has crossed that part. That's why it is said that to a realized one, even Brahma, Vishnu, Mahesh worship, and that famous story of uh, Atri, Rishi and Anusuya, 
that the gods want to test her. She is a mortal on earth, but she has realized and they come down and put an impossible condition that feed us and feed us without wearing any clothes and making us sit in the laps. She says, fine. She turns them into little babies. And all the three goddesses come rushing. Where are our loved ones? She says, go and find out. They are sleeping inside on my cot as little children. So it is there in our uh, legions and tradition that man can and he must go beyond the gods. He should not remain tied to the domain or below the gods. But gods don't let him easily pass. It is true. The Vedas speak of the struggle with Indra, with Rudra because that would mean that their kind of you know domain comes to an end. So and then one has to deal with them as brothers and sisters. They become friends and allies, not like there where you worship. They become friends and allies in the great battle of the future. They are very fine people. <laughs> they are beautiful beings. But we need not be under them. They are our friends and allies. That's why in all Devasur Sangram, there are the gods and there are humans who participate. So they are friends and allies in the great battle of the future. Wrestling against the powers of night, which is the drama going on being played upon earth. If we assume ourselves to be the players of the drama or actors, what is the harm? Because no harm. ultimately, yes. we are just that. Yes, yes, there is no there harm in that. In the Absolutely. And the only only thing is that we should, we should play the game consciously, knowing the rules of the game and knowing that we can play it far, far better. Absolutely we should play. But even to play perfectly, we have to be one with that perfection. So, yes, that's that's the basic thing. We should play the game consciously. And uh, we, are, we have assumed a role. But to play that role consciously itself is so difficult. Uh, I mean, I take this uh, simple um, sloka in Sanskrit. Achare devo bhava, matra devo bhava, pitra devo bhava. Now, it's normally interpreted as, you know, Treat your Acharya as God and treat your mother as God, treat your father as God. I have another interpretation of this. Oh Acharya, be as a God unto the decision. Oh Father, be as a God unto your child. Oh Mother, be as a God unto the child. Now why? Because eventually, essentially, the human father and the human mother are a reflection upon earth of the eternal father and the eternal mother. And they are simply trustees and they must, to play the role well, they must unite and know how the human father and human mother, I mean the divine father and divine mother deals with creation. So divine father deals with an infinite patience and divine mother with an infinite indulgence. It's a strange thing. The divine teacher with a perfect knowledge of what is required at each point of time. So if we have to play the role, let's say as, you know, as a teacher, or as a doctor, or you know, or as a mother or father, how would we play? How does the divine relate with this universe when he relates as a father, mother, teacher? So we have to play in that sense. So we can play it to the fullness and in its perfection. But equally, we can play it as a you know, uh, players who don't know the game. So that's not fun. I mean, it may be fun, but usually it's not fun. Can we say I am what I am and forget about? It? Yes, we can say that till nature will make us realize that we are not just this. So then the other option is open. 
See, we will be compelled to be what we are in our secret depths. This is the law. So every time we say, I want to be what I am, that's it. That's the end of the story. The nature, because in the depths, that secret truth is hidden. It will emerge. And it will, you know, it knocks us and jostles and pushes and compels us to be what we actually are in our secret depths. So, you know, that's why it happens. In fact, most of us do say that. Even when we don't say that, we assume it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's why this process of painful emergence. But we can do it consciously. Instead of going through yoga, we can do Saha Yoga. So yoga is literally that, if you really look at it. What is yoga? It's a separation. When I say I am what I am, basically I am affirming my separative identity. So the term is very interesting, yoga. Even when we get things, we have yoga. Because, you know, it is the way towards yoga of one kind. So that is one option. And most of the time, it is the, the common option. I mean, I really appreciate the uh, genuineness of what you say. That most of us do do it. And that's why... Uh, and we call it very nice terms sometimes, I'm being authentic, I'm being what I am. But actually this is not true authenticity. So as a result, uh, nature compels us till we raise this issue of life sometimes that why me and who am I and you know it compels us. And uh, then we go on to the next stage of Sahaya Yoga. That let me collaborate with what uh, in my depths the divine wants me to become. Which one? Mother symbol. Uh, the mother symbol uh, we see in the center. Uh, it's the lotus flower seen from top. It's the top view. Just as Shurabindu symbol, we have the lotus in the center. So lotus is the symbol of the avatar. Um, political parties have you know, adopted. <laughs> I am not talking of that but it's a symbol of avatar because it grows in the mud so that's why the mystery of the avatar that he assumes such beauty and splendor enters into the mud and mire of human nature and now you know this is a symbol at top view of that flower in the center the core is aditi the divine consciousness the divine mother around her there are the four powers the four petals which are her four power and four aspects which are uh, you know, the core powers which have carried earth evolution so far. Maheshwari, Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, Mahasaraswati. Knowledge, power, harmony, love and the power for perfection. And around that there are 12 petals. So these 12 powers are the powers which are necessary for the new creation to manifest. So each of the petals she has given a different name. And she has also said that this arrangement can change because for each one, you know, because they are infinite qualities. But by and large, the names given, I won't remember all of them. Last year in Om, we had in fact done that. Uh, goodness, equanimity, peace, um, progress, sincerity, gratitude, courage, aspiration. So like that, she has given 12 names, which are necessary for uh, the new creation to come about. So that's mother symbol. And at the same time, explain us Aurobindo symbol to me. Okay. So, <laughs> symbol is there. We see the two triangles, the ascending and the descending triangle. 
So ascending triangle is matter aspiring through light, life and love. So matter aspires first through life. Life seeks, then through light and love. Love is the best way to aspire. So it aspires through that. And in response to this aspiration, there is the divine response, the descending triangle, which is Satchitananda. Satchitananda. And the perfect meeting point is that home of truth, the square, the supramental truth. And within it, water represents multiplicity, the creation, and the lotus is the avatar. So he comes uh, to create a perfect new creation upon earth in response to the divine aspiration, uh, human aspiration, the response of the divine comes down and there is a perfect point where this new creation can be expressed. So since Shurabindo brought down this supramental consciousness upon earth and that was his work, so we have the square, the perfect square in the center as the symbol of the supramental truth. So that is Shurabindo symbol. There are other symbols also of Ishwara and Ishwari put together. Then Shurabindo society symbol which is like a diamond. Around Shurabindo symbol you have joined, all the angles are joined by a line and the mother gave the significance, it's it's the diamond, uh, the action, uh, the divine action at its intensest. So there are symbols like that they have given. Um, before mother met Shurabindo, she had sent a particular symbol uh, to check out uh, whether he knows its significance or not. And she wanted to make sure that he is not again one of those adversaries who assume a divine name. So, because that symbol, only someone who had realized the divine consciousness could give the meaning. What was that symbol? We don't know. But Shurabindo gave the correct meaning of it. Then she knew. Then she came all the way. And then she saw. Shurabindo, she was already meeting Shurabindo as at 11 years of age. Only she used to call him Krishna. She was relating with him. And she had no idea of the Indian tradition. But she used to call him Krishna. She used to meet many of the masters. Between 11 and 13, she expresses in one of her prayers that she would see that she is going wide above the earth and her robe is spreading vast and vast and all the people of the world from all sides are coming to touch that robe. And some would get peace, some would get strength, some would get... Uh, you know, uh, rejuvenated and returned back, hope, etc. And during that time, she says, in what I call as my body sleep, she would meet many of the masters. And one of them, whom she would meet and constantly and with whom she developed a permanent relation, she used to call him Krishna. And then when she came to the ashram for the first time, I mean, there was no ashram then, she saw Shurabindu and she recognized in him the being that she used to call Krishna. And then she wrote, It matters not if thousands of people, beings are plunged in the darkest ignorance. He whom we saw yesterday is here upon earth. His presence is enough to prove that a day will come when all this darkness will be transformed into life. Oh Lord, my heart is full of joy and gratitude. So that is the uh, story of the divine avatar in this era. In each era there is a story. It is still unfolding itself. So look, uh, 
Yes, that's right. Because lotus is the symbol of the avatar. They are one into bodies. That mother and Shivinda have said that very clearly. So one consciousness in two bodies. They they had to do it for the action. Even in Rama and Sita's story and Radha and Krishna, it is one consciousness in two bodies. It's necessary for the nature of the work. So in one sense, you could say that if you look inside Shirovindo, you'll see the mother. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I have the other approach. I look in mother and see <laughs> Shirovindo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I got that. I got that. I got that. I was simply uh, stating the factual aspect of the other side. I love to look into her eyes and be lost in her and find Shirovindo there. Yeah, yeah. Just, I think, uh, sir, yes, yes, sir, I'll come to that. Lotus is not a symbol that there is a lot in us. Oh, wow, that's very good. Uh, see, such a wonderful revelation. Lotus means lot in us. Yes, 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 yes of course, yes. Yes, sir. As mother said, during the evolution process, medium form of human being is going to come. Mm-hmm. So, which are the characteristic features for mm-hmm. Intermediary species. She said she will, there will be many intermediary species and one of uh, them would be the superman. The superman is a being whose inner consciousness is changed but the outer body is still the same. So, there is still the grip of matter and naturally because when you assume a material body certain things would be there as part of the material thing. But uh, inner consciousness would be changed in, into a greater light. It would in, Inwardly, such a being would live in a greater light, in a vaster consciousness, in a deeper truth. But the matter would still be unchanged. So that is a superman. But there would be many, many other intermediary. In fact, she says there may be even abortive attempts because it's like a new creation. So all the hazards, the first man who appeared on earth did not fly the aircraft. He only did some cave paintings and fought against beer and fiber. But he was destined to computers and break through space and periods of time. So this is just the beginning. There would be many, many such, um, even islands of effort, which will go on through centuries because it's, it's a real event. It's too close to our view. And is the most happening thing upon earth. Who would be harbingers of that change? Who would be the forerunners of a divine multitude? That is a privilege. When that form is going to come, what? She said, uh, she said that Shurabindu said it would take about 300 years for the change. She said for the physical to change, it may take around a thousand years. But then she also said that we can uh, do it faster. If you collaborate, it can be much faster. So, it's nothing compared to billions of years through which we all have gone through. Yes, uh, uh, just uh, this baby. Yes, Ambika. First, Manu the thinker. Manu the thinker, who was the first person on earth, Man, no? Talking of man. Manu, the thinker. 
you can take it either ways. <laughs> yeah, that's how he is described because um, there's a whole story about that which I'll tell you later. Manu and Shatrupa, uh, because I'll have to really step by step tell you, but uh, he was the first born among men on earth. And um, you would be interested to know that mother said that she has memory of the first human type because she and Shirobindo were there. She says it was a very harmonious life, very simple because it was very close to the human ki animal kind. And she says it was like an earthly paradise and then she points out also. She says, uh, I don't recollect, she says, I don't recollect exactly whether it was on this side of the Indian Ocean or onto the other side. But she points towards Java. Interestingly, you know, people call today Java man as the first being. So, uh, it, she says it was a very harmonious life. I have glimpses and uh, recollections of that. But then, uh, with the development of mind, that harmony was lost because man is that. But it started with that. So, there may be some truth in stories of Tarzan and Mowgli. Uh, when avatar comes, they kill the Asuri Shakti and uh, establish the Dharma. And then there will be a, I, I could be wrong, that there will be a peaceful on the earth, right? Mm -hmm. But, as you mentioned that before, that Sri Aurobindo and Mother for the avatar of Karti, they... Why look, in my mind, look like when they left their body, why they still there are Asuri Saptis are here and... Yes, the, the, the worst, if you really compare Hitler and Stalin to Kansa and Ravana, million Kansas will not equal. They will really look like saints. There was actually a little story sometime back that uh, Rama and Hanuman are talking to each other and Hanuman is saying, you know Lord, they are demolishing the bridge we had built. So Rama says, I am aware of that, I have heard about it. So he says, why don't we go and tell them, you know, that it's not done. He says, what is the use? They will ask you your identity. And if you say, I have built it, he will ask, where did you get the degree? And all these things. <laughs> so <laughs> Hanuman says, well, we can go there and, you know, show it, reveal it to them. He says, you know, times have changed. If you go with a bow and arrow, <laughs> they will put you behind the bars. You don't know how things are. He says, well, in that case, we can reenact the drama and we can talk to Ravana and Marich and others. He says, yes, I spoke to them, but Ravana and Marich are too scared. <laughs> the story goes, Ravana says, no, I don't want to go there because I can't do such horrible things as are happening now. <laughs> Even Ravana is an asura, has his dignity. You know, he did not touch Sita despite doing Sita Haran. And, and the story ends saying Marich is too scared because he says still Salman Khan is there. <laughs> that is a, a episode of the you know Salman Khan killing the uh, deer, which is it refers to that. <laughs> so the, you know it's it's really interesting if you really look at Hitler. All our past asuras will fade in, they will look like gods and saints. <coughs> and Shurabindu tackled him. Now, of course, 
immediately after the killing of the asura it's not that things overnight change even though uh, ravana was dead it took a while you know it was still the kingdom of the rakshasa and even vibhishna had tendencies this famous story vibhishna came to ayodhya and you know all the monkeys were very worried that this guy you have brought after all he is a rakshasa and he goes and he picks up a, you know one night he eats a monkey not monkey he picks up a uh, kargosh here because he wants to eat non vegetarian food and ayodhya there are no non veg restaurants <laughs> all the monkeys go and complain to rama rama says all monkeys are fine he says monkeys are fine he says don't bother then again after a while he gets an urge so he eats another here but this time he feels pukish so again the monkey has seen and he runs and he says you know he is eating non veg he says don't worry your monkeys are okay no he says fine third time he eats he pukes now the story is that you know the change takes place over a period of time if we compare today's world to what was 50 years back there is a sea change if you really look at when shirobindo came uh, at all levels uh, adharma is what you know when uh, instead of the divine being at the base of things we have uh, you know darwinism despite on one side bringing the theory of evolution uh, had turned creation into a kind of you know play of chance accident there is nothing divine inside it um freudianism had established on earth that uh, human beings are nothing but glorified animals positivism had you know taken away god and science had declared that you know we don't need god we just need an electron and the rest we can explain so if you look that time imperialism communism forces that were swallowing the earth darkness obscurity and ignorance in the very land of light india lying low in sunk in tamas so much so that uh, you know forgetting its own strength the way women were being treated the way you know caste system had become rigid and horrible you know if you really look at 100 years back what this world was and when we look after 60 yoga became a household name breaking through barriers of time and space the you know the rise of um, certain nations imperialism uh, the the sun of british empire would never set now you know it's struggling to just uh, hold a recession you know that is the situation that the whole tide has turned communism has collapsed one of the big threat to uh, you know some of the countries so and so much more is happening today so if you really look at it that the main bastion of resistance had gone away uh, 30 years back uh, even when i had uh, 40 years back 40 i don't recollect 30 years when i had just joined the indian air force Uh, people were not very you know you couldn't talk about god and such things you were regarded as a little outdated today everybody has a god as a fashionable photograph in their room and it's quite fashionable mere to guru ji hain you know it's in thing so you know <laughs> so you know times have changed so much and within a short span women live mother said one of the first effect of the super mind will be Uh, youth uh, resurgence of youth all over the world, and they will revolt against the established norms and patterns. We know the flower children and the whole revolt of the sixties right here. And women, she said, would liberate themselves from the shackles of men, which is happening all over the world. And it is now more or less a uh, done thing. Um, it's probably going overboard, <laughs> 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 but but it's good. 
it has to, you know, after all thousands of years of slavery, uh, men imposed upon women that you are nothing but slaves and you have to cook our meals and look after our children. Mother, mother said, are they slaves? When this was told to us, are they slaves? He said, cooking food for someone? The way she has, you know, liberated the woman and right, if you see the ashram, no distinction between, uh, you know, men and women and uh, women do all the exercises and playground and physical activities. So uh, we see, if we see 50 years back today's world, this scene changed as if some hand came and turned the tide of time towards the light. Now unfolding will take time, you know, because after immediate destruction there is chaos. Even after Mahabharata there was chaos for, they say, you know, at least for 18 years there was total chaos. There was so much grief, there was so much arajakta, confusion. Pandavas went away into forest, they had a penchant for doing it and Yuyatsu was looking after the kingdom, Dhritaraj Gandhari and they had you know, started attending satsangs, so it was a horrible you know, phase and yet out of all that eventually, what Krishna had done, he had established the nation's soul, this was one of his work, which later on Ajat Satru and you know, many other Vikramadit and many kings would guard it. So it created a nation soul. It's a very wrong concept that, you know, Britishers came and created a nation. It's absolutely misreading of history. But it was a confederation of Rajyas. But there was no doubt about an Indian nation, you know, as not India, but Bharatvarsh or Aryavarth. So, uh, you know, he had done that and it remained established. Now, Sri comes to establish a global consciousness. But without annulling the nationhood, that's what he says, the three strides of Vishnu. So, family assumes its new place, the nation assumes its new place, but man has to move towards internationalism and a global consciousness. So, all his actions we see actually taking place. India as a resurgent guru of the world, the West and East coming together in a mutual cooperation and harmony. All the dreams we actually see now happening. Yes, there are many, 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 many Hitlers and you know, there, there are many <laughs> mini Stalins, but because their root is gone, uh, you know, when, when the uh, plants' roots dry away, uh, for some time it takes for the leaves and branches to dry. So the roots are gone, the, the leaves and branches will dry away. Yes. Uh, in many religions, second coming of Christ, Kiamat Kadin, in Hinduism also, mm-hmm. does it coincide somewhere and has... Absolutely. See, I had an intuitive revelation and I had written an article on this, the second coming. Now, if you really look at the second coming of Christ, it is around this period. That's why, you know, everybody was talking about it. Buddha has written from Nirvana as Maitreya is around this period. Krishna speaks of Sambhavami Yuge Yuge. Now, the one person on whom Krishna, Buddha and Christ fit is Shuravan. We really look at him and even in, if you read through passages of Savitri, there are so many lines where he uh, almost speaks of Christ consciousness. About his relationship with Krishna we know. Looking into his eyes, you know, the Buddha and he speaks, he has written about Buddha in another way as a hero who, you know, tramples over desire and he carries the work forward from Nirvana to beyond. So actually, but the thing is that because all the followers are waiting that if, uh, you know, Christ comes, he should once again be born in Jerusalem, resurrect, 
you know, those law which he gave that time, speak in Hebrew, now that won't happen. And we expect that the moment Krishna comes, he should, you know, wear a dhoti and once again go out looking for Pandavas. Uh, but, well, in Shurabindo, there are a lot of parallels to that. Or if Buddha comes, he would talk in Pali. He may not. He may talk in English. So, if we look for the outer signs, we may not find. But if we look for the inner signs, then in my um, consciousness, I have no doubt that the second coming spoken of and coming and, you know, releasing a new age, all these criteria, if I may say so, feel a bit fit with this window. But, you know, it is something which has to be revealed inside a person. I, I would never tell anyone that, Shobindra is an avatar and you must look at that becomes that little line if you cross you change a beautiful truth into a dogma and uh, we should we, we have no need it is not something to be told and it's not something which uh, you know otherwise we would become like evangelists <laughs> so if one feels it one feels it since you asked it that's why I am sharing this thing that in my inner consciousness, it has been revealed like that, and then there are markers, and maybe that's why this conscious this question came up. There must be a purpose, but um, it's for each one to you know reflect so and realize. All religions yeah. accept that. Yes, exactly. See, that that has to happen. Yes, so that's why. So uh, no, no, religions need not accept because what happens with religion, they lose Christ and Buddha and Krishna, then they become a religion. That's the sad part. See, instead of reproducing Christhood, instead of reproducing Krishnahood, instead of reproducing Buddhahood, we pick up the outer aspects of the teaching and fix it onto a frame. And we lose the inner essence. The same thing one may try with Shurabindo. In fact, people will try. That, you know, turn Shurabindo into some kind of either an intellectual thinker or a philosopher or a credulous person, but miss out on the real essence. And instead of living that truth, growing into that consciousness, Mad Bhavam Madgata through an opening towards you know them, their consciousness by surrender, by aspiration which they have revealed to earth and man. Instead of that, you know, just either fix a photo and put in Agarbati or declare that he was a great thinker and a great political philosopher. Both ways they we, we murder him, if I may use the word. But if we bring out the avataric aspect and live that truth, that is what he has come for, and that should be the uh, real purpose of his coming. But religions, uh, to turn it into a religion is the best way to finish it. And religions are formed like that. So for religious people may not re recognize him. Because they, they are, their frames are fixed and they have lost the spirit. I am not saying all persons. In every religion there are some who are very beautiful people. We all come from a religious background. I mean, I have my religious background, many persons here. And it has helped me when I have turned to Shirobindo. Uh, I have discovered the truth of all religions. I have understood Christ better and I can love him much better. I have understood Krishna better and I can love him much better. I can understand the greatness and might of Buddha and can love him much better because it is revealed by the grace of Mother and Shurabindo. So, you know, there is a harmony and unity of religion because you discover it is the one who came as Buddha. So, if I love the one, why wouldn't I love him? It doesn't matter whether, you know, he spoke of Nirvana, but what a lion he is. We, you know, show him as a, uh, you know, what normally we have declared as closing his eyes and meditating. Buddha is leonine. What courage it requires to, for a king, a prince, to walk away at night, 
carrying upon himself the burden and grief of a world, why there is death, why there is suffering, and seek its meaning in his death, he had no personal business to do it. What a lion among men. So when I look at the consciousness of Mahavira, who is not that way an avatar, but what a figure, sacrificing everything. Is it a joke? I mean, we can... Uh, and all the great seers and sages, and of course Krishna, who when his son is uh, abducted by, uh, you know, that great Asur, what is his name, Sambal Asur or whatever, Krishna is busy with the war. He says, this is far more important than going and rescuing my son. What consciousness they brought. Christ, what love it would be to save from the cross. I forgive them for they know not what they are doing. So salutations to them because they are, it's the one who is manifested through all these. So when we love the one, we love all these and we love even the miniature uh, images of divine. Every time we see in a human being a beautiful, generous, um, you know, attitude, it makes us filled with joy and gratitude because it's a sign of divine presence. So that's how we have to regard Sri not as an exclusive phenomena, uh, not as also at the head of uh, a whole journey, but as the one bringing out of himself that beauty of the future. Yeah. Yes, Sanjay. Small, yeah. Small question. Uh, we all heard about uh, Mother and Sri talking about Christ and Buddha and Krishna. What about Muhammad and uh, Muslim religion? Because I've never... Putting me in a very tight spot. Yes, no, no. Shurabindu has spoken of the zealot of the Mohammedan. Christ, uh, the Muhammad brought to earth a kind of faith which burns with passion and a kind of surrender which the earth doesn't witness easily. I mean, I really admire at one level when I see a Mohammedan uh, at sharp 5, not like us, 6 o'clock means 7 o'clock. I'm sorry, no offense. <laughs> a Mohammedan will never do it. You tell 5, a Mohammedan will make sure that he will come. He will leave his job, he will leave everything. He will, you know, um, uh, take a day off. But if he has to go for a prayer congregation, heavens may fall, but he will be there. That faith and surrender is tremendous. It can be misused, misguided, it is being, that's a different matter. But I admire it. I mean, that enthusiasm, that the message of equality that he brought. So there are beautiful things that Muhammad brought to earth. There are beautiful things that Moses got to earth. At that point of time, when if you look at it, uh, you know, the slavery with which people were living, his commandments, which in many sections of society are still valid, the only problem is that all these have a certain temporal context. They are not the perfect answer to human race. And yet they were great efforts in their own time-space context. And for many sections of humanity it is still relevant. I mean, let us at least become uh, sattvic in qualities like Rama. Noble in war, fearless in courage. That itself is a great gain for humanity. But we must understand it doesn't answer all our perfect, perfectly all our hopes, aspirations. That is what Shurabindu brings. Something still remains unanswered in our depths. Something still remains undone, incomplete. And that Shurabindu brings as a hope for the future. So certainly, I mean, I, I personally really look at all of them, uh, despite whatever religions make of uh, the past. 
I mean, if you really look at the disciples, then there would be many disciples of Shurabinda and the mother who would be uh, most useless creatures. So disciples are like that, unfortunately. But we have to look at what they brought, got for earth. And they brought some precious things which we should treasure them as part of our common inheritance. Who knows if uh, five births back I was not born in Persia as a Sufi mystic. I would have been saying Allah Akbar. So, you know, it's perfectly fine. <laughs> it's, it is also a name of God. But it doesn't answer all my contemporary issues and it doesn't give me the perfect answer of the future. It was very valid at one point of time. If you look at some of the Sufi mystics who have taken the best of Islam, it's amazing. I mean, uh, we just spoke about love and look at the words of this great uh, Sufi mystic, um, again, Amir Khusro, when he speaks of uh, um, his master, Hazrat Nizamuddin. He says that, Khusro Darya Prem Ka Vaki Ulti Dhar Jo Ubra So Doob Gya Jo Dooba So Par That this stream of love which flows from the divine, it turns the other way around. What is the law there? If you think you are swimming in it, then you are actually gone. But if you drown in it, you go across. And the same thing about ego, he says. He describes a very beautiful experience when Kusro went to meet. And you know, all these stories are so beautiful and so touching. I'll tell you one story and then we'll stop. It'll take a couple of minutes. So, sit. So, <laughs> no, 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 actually, uh, I also want to wind up. But uh, one story is about Amir Khusro. Um, Amir Khusro, when he saw Hazrat Nizamuddin, his master, you see, it's a completely Islamic context. You know, what is the feeling that came into him? This is the experience one has when one finds one master, the shock of the psychic. That inner initiation he describes very beautifully. I apni chab banake gayi. I'll say in Hindi then, you know, that, and then, Chhap tilak sab chini mose naina milaike. That I dressed myself in the most virtuous clothes and I went to see my beloved. That I want to impress him. But when I saw him, he snatched away all this makeup and all this thing. And I forgot myself completely and I was just gazing and gazing and lost myself in those two lotus pools. What an experience is this? This is not, uh, it's an extraordinary thing. And the story goes, you know, one can learn from all, all of these mystics that when Amir Khusro was going to meet Hazrat Nizamuddin, he was a great minister. So he was carrying a whole retinue with him. And from the other side, a disciple of Nizamuddin was coming. So this disciple had asked Nizamuddin that, you know, my daughter's marriage is there, please help me. Nizamuddin said, I don't know how to help you, but you please carry my slippers and that the best help I can give you. So, you know, he is, what is it? What will I do with the slippers? All these thoughts are there in his mind. He crosses Amir Khusro and, you know, Amir Khusro comes to know he is coming from his master, who, who is, he has not yet acknowledged, he has inwardly acknowledged him as a master, but doesn't yet know. So, he asks him that, what, where are you going to? He said, you know, I have to go for my daughter's marriage and I am very worried. Uh, he said, why are you worried? Your master is there. He says, yeah, I told him, but all that he could give me was a pair of slippers. So, Amir Khusro asked him, will you give it to me? He says, yes. He said, what would be the price? So, Amir Khusro says, uh, will you give it to me if I give you the entire retinue that I am carrying with me? He is more than overwhelmed. 
Swami Kusuf carries these chapels and goes to meet um, his master Nizamuddin carrying them on his head and then he goes and puts it at his feet that master please wear them your feet it doesn't look good if you you know don't wear chapels so the master smiles and asks Samir Khusro how expensive was it <laughs> Amir Khusro says i got it very cheap <laughs> so you see uh, it's a completely islamic context and uh, it is so inspiring so moving there is a picture card of shurbindo's chapels you see it you'll cry he came to earth and wore those things and how they lived Let me show you close